Amen. Well, guys, we are so glad to be with you this morning. It would be normal at this time that I would ask you to open up your Bibles, but today I'm going to tell you don't do that because that would be cheating. Uh, this is going to be a quiz. Uh, we're going to give you a, a Christmas quiz. It's kind of become a, a tradition for us around this season. We're going to take a little quiz before it. We will open up our Bibles in a moment, but right now we're just inviting you to have one of the quiz sheets that we brought, had available at the door for you. If you did not get one of those when they came when you came in the door, would you raise your hands and our ushers and greeters are going to come by and make sure that you get one uh, so that you can be able to participate uh, this morning in that. We see it, and you'd be able to walk in that. We'd love to have you be a part. Again, if you're joining us online, you can download it off our website, or just any piece of paper will do, quite honestly, because you can just kind of recognize it's a multiple choice, you know, kind of A, B, C, D, and you can just kind of write it in the midst of that. We'd long uh, that you would be able to do that with us this morning. Well, the theme of this is what we've called a real Christmas quiz, and here's the intention and here's the heart. We long for there to be reality. We long that, there, that God would draw us to that which is true, not just that which is fiction and fable around it, and so we want to draw your attention to that by asking the questions that we're going to ask. Maybe the easiest way to help define that, again, as we think about, okay, what does the Bible really tell us about Christmas, is to give you a couple practice questions. Uh, these are not going to count against you uh, in, in, our, in our count this morning. This is just to help you kind of get there. So practice question number one, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is A, a lot of Christmas leftovers, B, not having to stand in line at returns, C, singing loud for all to hear, D, none of the above. Write your answer. In the practice. This is going to be in the midst of it. Then we get to write number, number two. You can't give anybody any help, you know. So uh, Christmas, December 25th, is Jesus' birthday. Uh, true or false? You guys write that in there and just whichever one is in the midst of that. All right, let's kind of walk through this and think about what we have. So the best way to spread Christmas cheer, if you wrote down number C, then yes, you do know your Christmas movies. You hear Buddy kind of saying that, you know, in the midst of the whole deal. But if you're paying attention to what I'm telling you this morning, you would have chosen D because it's none of the above. That's not in the Bible. I mean, it's not, it, it, it's fiction. It's not truth. And we want to focus on that, which is true this morning, that we would get that. So you're going to get a little bit of my odd questions, some of my weird sense of humor, but we're aiming for what does the Bible really have to say? That draws us to the second question, December 25th, Christmas, is Jesus' birthday true or false? And the answer is false. False because the Bible never gives us a day for Jesus' birth. It never tells us anywhere in Scripture the day of the year that Jesus was born. In fact, as we research this, we understand that it wasn't for 400 years after Jesus died that the church officially proclaimed Christmas to be Jesus's birthday. And they did not do so on the basis of, you know, historical do documents or anything that, you know, made that. Instead, they did it as a, as a uh, kind of replacing a, a pagan feast, which is not necessarily a bad thing to say, hey, instead of doing that, we're going to celebrate this. Uh, it can be a good thing, can go in a lot of directions, but this we know it isn't necessarily today. So here's the deal. We have no idea when Jesus was born but he was born. 
He was born at one time. So maybe you're here this morning, you absolutely love Christmas. Please don't take that as an offense. It's worth celebrating the birth of Jesus, and it's good to do so. Maybe you don't like Christmas. Maybe you don't celebrate it, and you're like, that's why I don't celebrate it. Well, fine, but he was still born. Uh, he still came, and that is worth your attention uh, in, in space that we want to get to, and that's what we're pursuing this morning. Not that which is traditional, not that which is story, but that is what the Bible actually tells us about the birth of Jesus Christ in the world. So we're going to dive into it, uh, kind of helping you kind of just hopefully see that. We have 20 questions laid out before you. Some of them are a little tricky. They're going to be FYI. Maybe I could have said a couple of them better. I had some people in the first service that are like, man, uh, you're kind of in the midst of it. And, and, and just, but at the same point, just meant to hopefully be fun, but also just attract you to the real truth of what's there. So may God bless and may he help you to do well. I think some of you are going to knock it out of the park. I just really think that's going to happen. So here we go. Number one, which Gospels have accounts of Jesus' birth in them? A, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, B, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. C, Matthew and Luke. D, Mark and John. That's your answer. All right. Number two. The first promise of Jesus' birth, the first time ever in Scripture where there is kind of a, a promise that Jesus would be born, that there would be a, a place where he come, is where? Is it A, in Genesis 3, B, in Psalm 22, C, Isaiah 7, D, Micah 5? All right. Number three. Paul tells us that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, A, that we might go to heaven, B, to have the best Christmas ever, C, to seal up vision and prophecy, D, to adopt us as his children. Okay. Number four. Who told Joseph to go to Bethlehem? Was it A, the government, B, an angel, C, Mary's mother, D, the Bible? Some of the questions are questions we've asked before. Some are new. Hopefully, so some of you are like, I recognize this one. And yeah, this is one that we've done before. Number five, on what did Mary ride to Bethlehem? A, a dinosaur. That's what it was. Uh, B, a donkey, C, a camel, D, none of the above. It's not really a dinosaur, just that's a help, you know. All right. Number six. Why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? Was it A, it's where they lived, B, it was where Elizabeth was, C, Joseph was David's heir, D, none of the above? Right, number seven. What is the biblical description of Bethlehem as the place of Jesus' birth? Like, how does the Bible describe uh, that city? Is it A, nothing good comes from it, B, that it is a little city, C, that it was Ruth's city, D, that it was Rachel's city? All right, number eight. 
So what did the innkeeper tell Joseph? A, you are not welcome here. Uh, B, there is no room in the inn. C, you can have my room. D, none of the above. Okay, really sensing some hundreds here, just thinking, you know, just thinking you guys got this. Number nine, what were the swaddling cloths and the manger to the shepherds? Like the shepherds were told, what were these meant to be for them? Were they A, guides to find Jesus with, B, things they provided Jesus with, C, what Mary showed them, D, what the innkeeper provided? Okay. Number 10, halfway there, a manger is a bassinet, B, a hollowed out rock, C, a cave, D, a wooden feeding trough. Number 11, what does Emmanuel mean? We just sang it. You just sang it in the song, but what does it actually mean? What does that word uh, mean? A, Messiah, B, God with us, C, Son of God, D, save now. Number 12. Why did they name him Jesus? Like, what was the reason that the Bible tells us that they named him Jesus? A, it was Joseph, Joseph's grandfather's name. B, it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. C, he would save people from sin. D, the Bible does not tell us. Number 13. How many wise men came to see Jesus? A, 2, B, 3, C, 4, D, none of the above. Number 14, the wise men probably. Now, this is a probably. So this is kind of an opinion one, but it's still my question. So if you get it wrong, you still get it wrong, but you still can get an A, okay? So you still get an A if you get this one wrong, but it is a little bit of a probably. So the wise men probably had their origin from A, Abraham, B, Moses, C, Isaiah, D, Daniel. All right, number 15, the star the wise men followed, A, was only seen in Israel, B, shined over where Jesus was, C, shined nightly to lead the wise men, uh, D, none of the above. All right, number 16. What led the wise men to Bethlehem? What led them to the city of Bethlehem? A, the star, B, the Bible, C, a map, D, Herod's servant. All right, 
Number 17, the wise men came and worshiped Jesus in the manger. True or false? Number 18, one of the wise men's gifts was myrrh. What was myrrh used for? Is it A, a form of currency, B, an embalming spice, C, incense in the temple, D, none of the above? What was myrrh used for? Nineteen. The people of Jerusalem heard the wise men's quest and A, joined them in seeking Jesus. B, were troubled but distracted. C, asked what the Bible said about Jesus. D, none of the above. Right, one more. For what reason uh, did the wise men seek Jesus? A, to worship him, B, to give him gifts, C, to make him king, D, to form an alliance. All right, you guys ready? Okay, there we go. We got the 20 questions. We got them in there. Let's begin working them through. But once more, our goal is to say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? Where does this go? Number one was, which gospels have accounts of Jesus' birth in them? And the answer is C, Matthew and Luke. That's the only two gospels. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But accounts of Jesus' birth are only found in Matthew and Luke. John Conn talks about the deity of Christ. Mark jumps straight into it with no accounting of Jesus' birth. So Jesus' birth is only found in those two Gospels. Now, that, by the way, helps us or should give us some clarity. Jesus is born, and that is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of our noting. But there's a danger in modern-day Christianity that Christmas is held at the same level of Easter, of the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. In the Gospels, one-third of the Gospels focus on the death and resurrection. One-third of the Gospels cover a week in Jesus' life, certainly elevating that to one of the primary focuses, whereas the birth of Christ, it's only even in two of the Gospels and only in a couple of chapters. It's not that it's unimportant, but it should not even be close to significant to us in Christ in, in the way that we value things. A good place for us to even just kind of approach things in a biblical way. So that was number one. Number two, the first promise of Jesus' birth is in which space in the Scripture? All four of these are, are passages that speak about the birth of Christ, but it is the first one. It is Genesis chapter 3, which is the very first picture of Jesus coming. In Genesis 3, God is speaking uh, to Satan. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. This is one of these amazing passages. This is like the very beginning of the mess and brokenness in the world. And God makes a promise that, that through Eve and her seed, which, by the way, I mean, just not getting too tired, that doesn't work. That's not how a woman, you know, has a child. A seed is, it's, it's already a picture of the virgin birth of Christ being promised to the woman that, that it would be through him that would become the, the fix of the brokenness, defeating the devil, defeating sin, and bringing in life. It's what theologians call the proto-evangelicon, the very first 
message of the gospel, just three chapters into the scriptures, which is amazing, but worth our noting that when we think about Christmas, it's, it begins there. We think about the weight of it flows all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. All right, so that's number three. Number three, Paul tells us that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, D, to adopt us as his children, to bring us into his family. Yeah, this is worth your noting. Uh, This is what it tells us in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Pause and just think of it. At the exact right time, Jesus is born. At the exact right time in eternity and history, Jesus is born of Mary, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, I recognize somebody's going to be like, Jim, that's a trick question because that's not actually in Matthew or Luke. I mean, is this really a Christmas question? Well, it really is. And I just want to tell you, it's worth your noting. I mean, there should be something about it that if you understand what we're celebrating, the birth of Christ, you take heart what the Bible says. And the Bible says, hey, this celebration is about God taking us who are not his family, who are broken in this world and bringing us into his family, adopting us as his children, that for those of us who are in Christ, we now become the children of God. That's worth you knowing. That's worth you being able to say, I know exactly this word, because it, it, it should speak weight and wonder into this day, and it's worth us making sure that we're aware of it. So again, not a trick question really, but one that you could and should uh, know the answer to. All right, those are some of the ones in different spaces. Some of the rest of them come here from Luke chapter 2, so this time do grab a Bible. I want you to see it with us, so grab hold of a Bible. Hopefully you brought one. Make your way to Luke's gospel. If you didn't bring one, there are Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you so that you can grab one of those, and we want you to, so you can see that with us. If you want to open up an electronic device, you can do that, but we want the scriptures open. We want you to see that these are the things that God is speaking to us. So if you're joining us online or in the overflow, same invitation. Grab a copy of the scriptures, have it open so that God would speak to you through the weight and wonder uh, of his word and that that would draw us into what he has for us. God, make it so. Verse four, number four, excuse me, uh, it says, who told Joseph to go to Bethlehem? Uh, the answer is there in the first few verses of chapter two of Luke. So let's read that. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Who told Joseph to go there? Well, it was the government. It was Caesar Augustus that now becomes a part of the one that makes him go from where he is up in Nazareth uh, to go down to Bethlehem, and that's a good part of this story. Now, just a trick question, because it's this amazing thing that we are watching the unfolding of Jesus and how God gets Jesus, this one who's, who's biblically prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. The way that he gets Joseph there is he uses a, a decree from Caesar Augustus. I want to tell you there's hope there. I want to tell you, if you know the biblical account of, uh, of, of the story and the account of what God did in Christ, you would look at this and it would give you hope into our day that you would recognize that God is sovereign and he's working through even governments and that he can accomplish his work not because of them, but in spite of them. He can use those things to kind of fuel what he's doing and you would find hope for your life in recognizing how Joseph gets to Bethlehem. And it's a good space for us to know this morning. All right. 
Number five, one of our regular questions that we put on the quiz, uh, what did Mary ride to Bethlehem? We get that there in verses four and five. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. What was she writing? Well, the answer is none of the above. I mean, there's just not anything listed there. Now, again, I, I just want to recognize for somebody here this morning, that's going to be troubling because you're like, no, I know there's a donkey. There's always a donkey. I have, I have been to a hundred Christmas plays, and there is always, always, always a donkey, but there's none in the text. I mean, if you just read it, Joseph goes up from Galilee, out of Nazareth, into Judea. He goes up there to be registered with Mary. That's all it says. Could she have rode the donkey? Yes. I mean, it could have happened. Did it need to ride a donkey? No. I mean, she, they're poor. Uh, we know that when they, you know, get down to, the, you know, the, even the early sacrifices, they sacrifice one of the, you know, pigeons because it has the idea of you having nothing. It's very, very possible, even likely, that they didn't. And so, again, is it, you know, important? Well, it is important in this sense. One of the weird things about Christmas and Christians and Christmas is sometimes it seems like we're attracted to the stuff that isn't even there. I mean, in some senses, you know, it's like you know, when, you, when you see a Christmas play, it's like the donkey's a big part of the play. In fact, can we even go further? There in the manger scene, we actually don't know that there's any animals there. The only animals mentioned in the entire account of, of Jesus' birth are the sheep that the shepherds are watching out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. It's the only time it's mentioned. Were there animals at the manger scene? Maybe but maybe not. And yet I'm just telling you, that's like, well, of course, I got a manger scene at home. I got sheep and I got, you know, I, I got, you know, sheep and I got a, a cow and, you know, they're all, you know, maybe, but it's not really part of the story. It's not actually in the story. So it's worth you knowing, hey, that's not the focus. That is not what we're supposed to be focused on. There are things that we are to be focused on. And so we look on this and say, hey, it's good for us to know what, you know, that there's nothing here listed what she writes. All right, number six. Why? Why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? I mean, yeah, that, that, that Caesar Augustus told them to go, but why did they go? What was the, the weight of it? It actually gives it to us in verse four. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, catch the because, like this is the reason he was of the house and lineage of David. Yeah, he is David's heir. He is in the, he's in the, in, the, in the line of the promise to David. Why is that important? Well, there's this amazing scarlet thread of redemption that runs through the whole of Scripture, that God gives this promise you know, to David, hey, through your son, it, it, through your descendants are going to become my son. So there's this beautiful place that even in the midst of the account given to us in Scripture, we get the fulfillment of God working this incredible weight of promise uh, that we would say, hey, this is why they're there. They go to Bethlehem because it's David's city. It's where David, where David was and, and, and because they are heirs of that, that they're stepping into that. Worth, again, you noting and understanding. All right. You guys are rocking it, right? I know it. Like, just moving it there. What is the biblical description of Bethlehem as the place of Jesus' birth? The answer is B, that it's a little city. Yeah, that's what it tells us. Again, this is in the Micah passage in Micah chapter 5, the, the reference that tells us in the Old Testament why Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And it says it this way, but you, Bethlehem Epaphrathah, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Yeah, it's a good space for us to look through, and I would even add to it, it's one of these biblical themes that's worth just understanding, that's always true. God has this habit of working through the little guy. I mean, whether it be Gideon and his 300, or whether it be those that God brings down, there's something about the weight in which he wonders, which draws us uh, into recognizing his ability to work through us, and so even Bethlehem itself is just this no really great city in the midst of it, just a small city, but that's where Jesus would be born. Number eight, so what did uh, the innkeeper tell Joseph? Well, we have the recorded for us there in verse seven. Uh, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Hey, simple answer, simple answer, there's no innkeeper. Okay, it's a trick question. It's a little bit of a trick question. Just so I want you to understand that. Um, and I know it's against many of the kind of, you know, Christmas pageants and stuff that have done. But there is no innkeeper. In fact, let's just explore this a tiny bit deeper. I, I tried to ask this in a question a way that, again, would be helpful, but draw to us. There's no innkeeper actually mentioned in the text. In fact, there may not be an inn at all. Now, again, that's going to mess up somebody right now. I just know it's like, no, I know there's an inn. There's always an inn. You know, I, I, again, I've seen the plays, but we go and we look at that passage in Luke 2. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And you're like, well, Jim, there's an inn. Well, this is the English translation of the Greek language, and that's always the challenge is that you have, uh, you know, when people are translating the original, which is what the Bible is written for, it from Greek into English, they, you know, put words in here, and this is one of the ones that I think they may have gotten wrong. Again, I say that with just, hey, it's just a maybe, and you don't have to own it, but it's worth you thinking through that it's not really a hotel. They didn't have Motel 6 in those days. Like, it just didn't exist. In fact, against a Jewish culture, it was so much not a part of their culture. Hospitality was massive in, in Jewish culture. Uh, and, and so people, you know, not only did you take care of friends and relatives, you took care of strangers in many ways. It was constantly underscored within Jewish culture. And as we look at that, we look at this word that's translated in is actually better translated guest room. It is actually better translated guest room. In fact, that's how it's referred to in other spaces in the scripture. For you guys who are Bible students, you would maybe know this. So you get to Jesus. He's the last night before he's going to go and die on the cross. He goes up into the upper room uh, where he's going to have part in communion, that last supper. And it tells us that they prepare that in an upper room, in a guest room. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it tells us, then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat my, the Passover with my disciples? That's the exact same word that is translated in Luke chapter 2. Again, it's one of those frustrations I can have with sometimes Bible translation. It's like, at least be consistent. You know, then if, if it's an end, then make it an end here. Like, where's the end? <laughs> like, where are we can, it's like, it's not an end. It's an upper room. It's a, it's a guest room. Well, then translate it that way in Luke 2 as well, so that you would understand that it would really be there. Now, is this important? Is this, uh, again, worth you noting? I just want to say it is. It is because it's accurate, but I think it's a little bit more. So there's no room. If it's a guest room, uh, there's no room for it. Guest room where? Probably family. I mean, they're of the house and lineage of David. This is where they have family. I mean, there's, there's relatives living in Bethlehem. 
Why don't they have any room for them? Well, it could be because it's just too crowded. I mean, let's just own it. I mean, it's like, it could be like, hey, we, just don't, we can't give you your own room. But that seems unlikely. Uh, it probably is, well, a different story. Again, we'd have to just make some guesses at this, but it's worth you just remembering Mary's a virgin. Mary's a pregnant virgin. In culture in that day, that is huge in its brokenness and its, you know, just its shame. And it's very, very likely that nobody wanted to have anything to do with her. Uh, that nobody would, would want to, it's like, you can't come, you know, you are, you are ostracized and, and in the midst of that. I only tell you that for this reason because that becomes something very real and hopeful. See, I know this. I, I'm, I'm looking out at you guys right now, and I know that for some of you, Christmas is just idyllic and it's beautiful in your life. But I also know this. For not all of us is, you know, your Christmas celebrations like a Hallmark movie. I mean, for some of you, it's like, man, it's like, we have broken families. I mean, like, we have people that don't talk to each other. We have people that don't like each other. We have brokenness that, that people are angry, and they've been angry for 10 years, and you find yourself thinking, doesn't that ruin the whole story? No, no, it doesn't, because it's into that very story that Jesus is born, into the very idea of brokenness, and even in fractured relationships, and maybe even tense family drama kind of spaces that Jesus comes, and I want to just lay that out to you, that it's worth you kind of gazing at it and saying, hey, it's not an inn. <laughs> it's not a Motel 6. It's probably, you know, this whole kind of, you know, thing that looks so much more like our lives and world than, than we would even begin to get close to, but it's worth you just understanding. Okay, number nine. What were the swaddling cloths and the manger to the shepherds? Like, what were they meant to be for them? This is in verse 12, so notice it with me. Luke chapter 2, verse 12, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That gives us the answer. It's number A, which is, or letter A, which is guides to find Jesus. He says, here's the sign. Here's how you're going to be able to locate Jesus. This is the sign to you, again, is what he says there. And I know that you guys kind of get this, but sometimes you can read things in the Bible and you're just not paying attention. What's a sign? A sign is how you find something. It's kind of like an X marks the spot and say, hey, here's where you're going. A sign is one of those things that point out something that you can get there. That if you're looking for a restaurant, you like find the sign. The sign says, hey, this is where the restaurant is. Or you're looking for a garage sale, follow the sign. Follow the sign. It will get you to where you're going. So these are meant for signs. These are meant to be things that would be pointing in the right direction to find Jesus. These would be things that would be seeking to do that in their lives, and what becomes significant is it has bearing into ours. Well, before we get there, let's go to the next question, because it kind of begins to unpack that. There in number, number 10, it says a manger is, and again, we look at it, that's what he records it there in verse 12, and this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swallowing cloths, lying in a manger. So we watch this whole thing, we get to see what this is, and this is one of those trick questions, because see, I know that some of you, you put down D, because uh, that's how you've always seen it, but the answer is B. It's a hollowed out rock. Now here's the deal, if you've never been to one of my Christmas quiz, you probably got that wrong, and I'm sorry, but it's still my quiz, so um, uh, just, just the way you get to walk in it, but let's just pause and think this through for a moment. 
See, our problem is, again, for some of you, like, no, no, I, I've, I've seen a hundred thousand manger scenes, and they all got that little wooden kind of axe-shaped, you know, feeding trough. I know what it is, but that was a very American kind of a thing. That's a very thing that would fit our culture. It's not Jewish. It's not in the midst of that. If you ever get to go to Israel with us, and some of you will in just a few months, we will go there and we will get to see that in the midst of this, when we think about this, this manger, this sign that is there, this is a manger. These are pictures that I took there in Israel. These are archaeological ones. And what you find is that mangers were not made out of wood and made out of rock. In fact, most things in Israel are made out of rock. I mean, wood was a very different kind of commodity in Israel, much harder to come by. So things were made uh, out of rock. And so you're looking at a couple of mangers there that, that, were, that I took pictures up up in Megiddo. Here's one that's a little bit closer. Uh, you would often find that they'd have a rock where you tie, you know, your horse or whatever to that say, hey, this is where they're going to kind of, you know, tie them up to. But it would be in that sense, again, this place where it would be a rock that would be the manger. Now, why is that important? I think it's really, really important, but it's going to take me just a quick moment to unpack it for you. If I could take you back to that day that Jesus was born, and you would look at Jesus wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in this manger, I would hold out to you that you get to see something that is a preview of what's to come. You get to see something that is a preview of 33 years later. Because if you continue that journey in Israel, we'll take you to the garden tomb there in Israel where this place is that Jesus, after he dies on the cross, would he be buried? This is the garden tomb, and it's a, 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 you know, carved out of a rock. You'd step through that door, and you would look down there, and you would find that the burial spot where you would lay, you know, those who have dead after you wrapped, the place where Jesus would have been laid, and you would have find him placed inside of a rock. And what I'm drawing your attention to is there's a preview here. I mean, Jesus lying in a manger, it's a preview of that which is to come, that you would look there and say, okay, here's the sign. You're going to find Jesus lying in a manger, lying in a rock that kind of foreshadows the resurrection, that kind of foreshadows everything that's there. In fact, bonus one here for us this morning that I didn't ask a question that sometimes I do, what are swaddling cloths? Well, again, yeah, if you read, you know, emails and stuff that every time you see some sent, people send these crazy emails of, you know, very elaborate ideas of what they are. And I just want to say this very kindly and gently, take those with a grain of salt. Like, don't believe everything you read. I mean, don't believe everything you read because a lot of it just is not true. If you just wanted to say, okay, what's the, is there any other space in the Bible that would give me a picture of strips of cloth, you know, kind of wrapping it, I would say yes. And again, it's when Jesus dies. When Jesus dies, they take him down from the cross and they wrap his body in strips of cloth. And without trying to press it any further than that, I would say, I think that's, a, that's this picture of how Jesus dies. In other words, track with me here for a moment. That's how they were supposed to find Jesus. How is that significant to you in 2022? Because it's how you're supposed to find Jesus. The sign given to them is the sign given to you. Do you want hope? Are you looking for hope today? You want to find God's hope? Then look to the cross 
and look to the resurrection. Find the one who laid down his life for you and paid the price for your sin, not in part for the whole. Find the one that three days later rose from the grave. And I will tell you right now, this is God just putting up his hands and saying, here's the sign. Like, like here's where you find hope. Here's how you find life. And what it was then, it is now. What we need is to see that. And it becomes this powerful reality that we would look at this not just as part of the story that is found in the scriptures, not just part of the account of Jesus being born, but part of our account and our story. See, I think about it this way. I have this picture that I'm using up on my slides, and let's just own it right off the bat. It's wrong. Like, it's wrong. It's a wooden manger. I need somebody to make me one someday that just I have a better picture and I can do it right, because somebody's like, man, you're messing, you messed me up because you had a wooden manger there. And, uh, but the idea, if you can see it, I know it's a little dim right now. There's a shadow of a cross on the manger, and that's why I like it. Because if you can see what the Bible gives us in this picture, you'll see it's a preview of that which is to come. That is worth you knowing. That is worth your understanding so that you would see that, and that's part of what we get to see here and why we get to see these signs. All right. Well, that's Luke 2. Let's flip over now to Matthew 2. Go left in your Bibles. Go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. If you've grabbed one of the Bibles uh, available for you in front of the chairs, you can go to page there on the screen, 1581. Make your way there so we can see the account that's given here, and we'll get a few more of our questions. Matthew chapter 2. All right, halfway through the questions, you guys rocking it, I'm positive, got some hundreds already going there. Number 11, uh, what does Emmanuel mean? I mean, we sang it, right? You sang it. I mean, it's one of those songs that we sang this season, and one of the dangerous things is that sometimes people have no idea what it means. How would you know what it means? I mean, maybe you're like, well, Jim, I don't speak Greek. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. God's got you covered because in the account, he actually tells us exactly what it means. Like if you're reading the accounts given to us, go back a chapter to Matthew chapter 1, go to verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they, sh and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Yeah, that's what it is. So B is the answer, but it gives it to you right there in the text. Like you could know this and you ought to know this, that there ought to be a sense that you're celebrating that when we think about Jesus being born, he is not just this baby, he is God born in the flesh. This is God come to us. That is worth us singing. That's why we're singing it. But the danger is again, that maybe we didn't catch it, but it's why you're worth knowing. It is Emmanuel, God with us. All right. So why did they give him the name Jesus? I mean, why, why do that? Well, that's also found there in chapter 1. Go back two verses to verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For, this is the reason, this is the because, he will save his people from their sins. C is the answer because that's what he's gonna. That's the, the point of this. He's named Jesus. That literally, in, in the name of Jesus, kind of going back into the, even the the, the, the idea of, of God being our salvation. Kind of the, what the, the word actually means in the midst of that. It's why he's even named this. And it's worth you knowing. It's worth you knowing that you say, okay, he is called Jesus. You know why we celebrate him? You know why I'm so excited that Jesus was born? Because he came to take away my sin. 
He came, he, he came to save his people from sin. And, and it's worth, again, that weight being in the midst of it. So hear me. Again, I'm asking these questions. And yes, some of them are a little bit tricky. And, and, and I'm not trying just to make them tricky, but I'm also trying to draw you to the meat. I'm also trying to say, hey, these are the reasons that you should be excited about this. This is what should excite you about the, the true value of, of the birth of Christ, of the things that he's doing. Okay. Number 13. How many wise men? came to see Jesus. Well, that's given to us in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So how many wise men are mentioned there in the text? It doesn't tell us how many wise men there are. Now, I recognize you're like, nope, nope, I got the song. We three kings of Orient are, and I mean, I know there's, I know there's three. Why do we think there's three? Because there's three gifts. Uh, they bring three gifts but we have no record of how many. There could have been two. I mean, it could have just been wise men like two wise men. There could have been 20 wise men uh, that, that came. I mean, there's no accounting to how many it's left in that way. So to see it as three, there's nothing in the text that actually goes that way. So again, just kind of one of those ones that kind of blow through and kind of knock out some of the things that we think through. As we think about wise men, the wise men probably, that's again a probably, so you might disagree and you could argue with me, I suppose, um, but it's still my test. Um, so Matt he gives it to us in there in verse 1, again, that wise men uh, from the east came to Jerusalem. So where did they probably get their origin from? Well, I would tell you, I think it's probably Daniel. I think it's probably Daniel. Now, again, there's others that would say, well, you know, Abraham came from the east, but yeah, he didn't seem to leave an impact there. He left Ur of the Chaldees when he, when he comes into this. Daniel, Daniel's actually called a wise man. I mean, so if you're looking for the Bible and you're thinking, okay, so where else have I ever heard of these wise men before? Daniel's a wise man. He is kind of taken as a young man, brought into the land of Babylon to be a, a wise man that consults the king. In chapter 2, when the king's trying to wipe out all the wise men, sorry, actually, before I get there. Um, so here's, uh, again, a map as we look at this. Bethlehem is, is right there. East, that's Babylon, uh, east of Bethlehem. There in Daniel 2, we get this, the king was angry, very furious, gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel's one of the wise men. He's one of the wise men there in the east that is part of, you know, in this whole space heading up to this, and it would seem to be at least an interesting theory, you know, like, hey, you know, he, what if Daniel's impact lasted long past his life? What if these wise men coming from maybe Babylon had their origin in Daniel? I mean, what if they became wise men much like this, continuing in this whole possibility? Again, not 100% certain, but certainly a good biblical kind of, because it's, you know, looking up wise men, where are they found? That's where they're found, and, and worthy, again, of your notes. So again, might have got it wrong, but you can still get an A. You can see it's just one being wrong, so just kind of walk in that with me. Okay, verse 15, the star that the wise men followed. Uh, what was that? How did that happen? Well, again, we get it there in verse 1, so let's read there. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Okay, pause there. We would look at this and say they saw it back in the east, so it's not just in Israel. It's not just a local thing. It's not just something that's happening there. They saw it 
in the east, probably over in Babylon in the midst of it, so it's not that. Going down to verse 7, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. That's interesting, by the way. It would seem that the star appeared maybe, maybe when Jesus was born. Not 100% certain, but it's an interesting thing that maybe it shows up on the night that Jesus is born. Then go to verse 9. When they heard the king, uh, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So a couple of interesting things about this star that's worth you just thinking through. So this star, it seems to, to, to shine, and then it disappears. Like they make their way to Jerusalem uh, there, and it's gone. And they have to go in and talk to Herod, and Herod gives them some advice. Then they go out, and then the star shows up again, and it moves and goes before them. So there isn't a sense that it was just shining there all the time. It wasn't constantly there. It appeared and disappeared. Uh, it was there sometimes, not at other times. And so where, how did this, shot, this work? Well, again, it told us to it there. You saw it there in verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. It says, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they'd seen in the east went before them till it came. And notice, it stood over where the young child was. I mean, this star just shines right there on where Jesus is. I mean, this moment kind of pointing that out in incredible ways. So again, a little bit tricky. I understand that. A little bit tricky. Maybe I could have worded it better, but that's where it is. And so we land there. By the way, just a little bit of a side. So the star, if, if, I've, if I've made a little bit of sense there, one of the dangers is that sometimes people see the star as a very natural thing. So there's every year there'll be people who come out around Christmas and they'll talk about the stars being some orbital star that kind of, you know, went around things and different possibilities. I would just hold out to you that the Bible lays out something that's supernatural. It cannot be natural. It, 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 it appears, it disappears, it moves, it goes before them, it shines directly over where Jesus is. It is something supernatural. It's a supernatural guidance that God is giving these to find their way to Jesus. Now, one of the fun little things to think about in that is to go back and think through Daniel, Daniel being one of the wise men and the one who gets to speak this. At the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, it says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness in the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. It's a great way to end the book of Daniel. I mean, Daniel, this wise man, is saying, okay, you know, if you're really wise, if you're really going to shine, it's as if your light will be a star, and, and you will shine uh, and draw people to Christ. And I would hold out to you that when you think about the star in the account of Jesus' birth, it is actually something that can mean something to you. I don't know if it does. I don't know if you're just like, well, I like the star. Have it up on my house. It's really, really fun. It's pretty. You know, if, it, if that's all it means to you, you might be missing the point. I would tell you that this is how they find Jesus. And today, in 2022, the star still exists. The star is still happening. Where is the star today? You're the star. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine that people can see your good works and they will glorify God. Our lives are meant to be that, that is that the glory of God is shining through and it's shining upon Christ and that we become those who, Daniel says, if you would do that, if you will be, if you're wise, you'll turn many people to righteousness. You'll be a star. 
you'll be a star in, in, in God's plan. You'll be the one that does that. And it's a fun reality to kind of think through because stars show people how to find Jesus. Good little fun thing to think through. Think about it even in our days again, and it makes impact. Okay, number 16. So how did they find Bethlehem? How did the wise men find Bethlehem? Well, we get it there in verses 4 through 8, so read it with me. Um, we'll just back up to verse 3. Then Herod the king heard this. They hear about the wise men seeking Jesus, and he's troubled, all Jerusalem with them. And when he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, Where, where's the Christ to be born? So they said to him, in Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea because it's written uh, by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd uh, my people Israel. Then Herod, when he'd secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and, and said, go search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also." Okay, this was a little tricky question, probably could have worded it a little bit better, but the answer, the answer is B, it's the Bible. Uh, it was the Bible that helped them get to Bethlehem. So the star drew them to Israel, the star drew them from the east to Israel, but it disappears. They get there to Jerusalem and they can't find it. So they go to Herod and they're like, we're trying to find the one who's born. We're trying to find the one who's born king. And so Herod's like, I don't know how to find him. And so he gets the scribes and it's like, where's the Christ to be born? And they open up the Bible. And they open up the Bible to, Matthew, to, to Mike, and they say, you know what? Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where he's going to be born. He's like, you guys go to Bethlehem. That's how it's going to go. And once they go, the star shines again. But it's kind of this fun part of the story. Uh, again, because it's as it was, then it is now. You and I are meant to be stars that help people find Jesus. But you know what? We don't stand alone. In the midst of that, God so often draws people to his word and says, hey, look into my Bible, look into what I have to tell you to, to find my son. It was then, it is now, it's still part of the same thing in, in the way that it's happening. So it's a good part of our story to still see a part of how God does that today and is even seeking to do it in you, that even seeking to do in you this morning, to draw you to find Jesus through his word. All right, 17. The wise men came and worshiped Jesus in the manger. We already saw it there in verse one. Let's just say it now. No, no, they didn't. False. If, if you have the, the wise men showing up in the manger, you are very cultural. You, you know, pay attention to your manger scene. But can I just say it this way? Most manger scenes are wrong. Why? Well, let's just read the text just in the middle of the text. So verse one. Now, catch it after, right off the bat, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem. Then down there in verse 9, it says, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they'd seen in the east went before them till it came and stood, notice, notice, over where the young child was. It's a very specific word in the Greek. It's not speaking of a baby. There's a, there's a word that speaks of a baby. A young child speaks of a toddler, uh, and so we know it's not a baby. <laughs> He's no longer born right there in the manger. He's now a young toddler kind of in the midst of this whole thing. In fact, in verse 11, it says, when they came into, notice, the house, and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. He's no longer in the manger. He, he's no longer out in a manger. He's in a house uh, in, in this space. So again, manger scenes are inaccurate. Again, I want to be that mean. So if you have a really beautiful manger scene, and you like having your wise men there, that's fine. 
you can just keep it there. You know, I'm not trying to be trouble. But you could also change it. I mean, years ago, we started kind of putting our, like, wise men across the room. Like, you know, it's like our main scenes over there, wise men over there. It's, like, it's going to take you a year to get from, you know, it's like, like that just, you're going to take you a while to make it here. They're no longer going to be in the manger scene by the time you get here because it seems to be that it probably was that. In fact, you go down to it in continuing, Herod, who's angry when the wise men don't come back, he sent forth and put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and all its districts who were two years old and under. So he's trying to kill Jesus at this point in time. And it's just worth noting that he kills two-year-olds and under. Now, Herod's probably being, you know, overzealous in this, trying to make it. Probably Jesus is around a year old. I mean, probably he's in that category, and he's like, hey, we're just going to make sure we're just going to make sure that, that we get him. But again, it just changes the way that we see it. But it also becomes helpful because we begin to see these wise men, not just as part of this moment, but this is something that propels them into the future, which is really something that we long for in our lives. Maybe more on that in a moment. But again, they're not there. <laughs> they're not there at the manger scene at all. All right. Number 18. One of the wise men's gifts was myrrh. What is myrrh used for? So there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, uh, that the wise men bring. One of those is, is myrrh. In fact, you can find it there in verse 11. It says, So when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And, then they, and when they had opened up their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, myrrh. What is myrrh? Well, let's just pause and say, Maybe you're thinking, well, Jim, how would I know that? I mean, how would I know what myrrh is? I mean, how would I know what that actually is? You know, I'm not a, you know, seminary student or any of those things. Could I know this just from the Bible? I want to say yes. So let me give you the answer. The answer is it's an embalming spice. The answer is that it's an embalming spice. How would we know that? Well, we know what, uh, again, myrrh is. It's this resin uh, that comes out of a tree, and it was used in that day for this. In fact, if you were just to do a quick search, like maybe in any you know, little Bible app that you have on your phone, and you looked up myrrh, you would find it used again when Jesus dies. That There in John 19, it says, And Nicodemus also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in strips of linen, and, and with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. Like, this is how Jews buried people. That they kind of wrap them, and they put these spices, this mixture of myrrh and aloes. So myrrh, therefore, is an embalming spice. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, let's think about this a little bit more. Much more time could be spent on this. Maybe you'll want to spend some time on it even this week. Think about it for a moment. So these wise men come. They fall down, they worship him, and they open their treasures. They present to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's kind of a crazy gift to bring. Now, gold's always good. I mean, like, you can, you can like, always give gold. I mean, that's, that's just like, fine, give them gold. You know, you can use gold for something. But gold also has some, some meat and, and me- measure in the Bible. In the Bible, it looks at gold, like in the Old Testament, especially in the tabernacle and temple. Gold is always a picture of God's presence, always a picture of the glory and, and who God is. And in one sense, it would seem that they're saying, hey, that's who you are. Frankincense is used in worship. So if you go back into Leviticus or you just did a search in your Bible, you'd find frankincense is part of the Levitical offerings, and it was kind of a part of that. And it seems to be almost a recognition that Jesus would be that one, the one who would become our great high priest, the one that would be the one that gives us access. And then myrrh. Again, it's, a, it's, it's this burial spice. Now, this is significant because we get this little bit of an understanding that for these wise men, they knew a little bit of what they were looking for. 
They, they know something about the one that they've come to worship, and it would seem that their gifts kind of symbolize that, but I mean, what crazy gifts? I mean, I know that you guys kind of get this, but I mean, talk about the worst gift ever at a baby shower, like myrrh. I mean, like any other day, like, I mean, I'm just telling you, if you did, like go to a baby shower today and you decide, hey, I'm going to give them a burial plot. Just thought that would be a great thing. Like your baby's going to die. Worst baby gift ever. Don't do it. Don't do it. But that's what they did. That's what they did. They're like, Here, here's myrrh. Here's myrrh. Your baby's been born, but here's myrrh. You're, 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 this baby's going to die. He's going to be the one that's frankincense. He's going to be the one school. But they had an understanding of who he is. And you're invited to see the same. You're invited to see this one who is born, this beautiful little child in a manger, born a baby, but born to lay his life down for us. And from the very get-go, it was understood and should be a part of our understanding of what Christmas is about. All right. 19. Last couple. The people of Jerusalem heard the wise men's quest, and how did they respond? We'll go back in verse 3. It gives it to us. It says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Wise men come. Herod comes. They hear this. How do they respond? They are troubled, but distracted. And I throw in distracted, but it is the idea that nobody else goes. The wise men leave from Herod's presence, and they and they alone make the journey to Bethlehem. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. You might say, well, hey, the, the people of Jerusalem didn't know. Yes, they know. They heard. They heard the wise men say, hey, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. We've come to see the one who was born king. And it troubles them. And they don't do anything about it. They, they don't go down there to see the one who was born king. And I hold that out to you because I would say, as it was then, so it is now. As it was then, so it is now. In fact, it'll happen this morning. Some of you will walk out of here and you will be troubled. I thought I was going to do better on that quiz. <laughs> like, I got it all. I can't believe he just did it. And, and you'll be frustrated, maybe mad at me. Like, your questions were dumb, Pastor Jim. I mean, it's, again, it's just not fair. But you won't make your way to worship the king. You won't find your way saying, you know what? I, I saw glimpses of what God really is and, and, and the beauty of what Christmas really is. And I want to, I want to journey. My, I want to go see him. I, I want to go and find, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know the one who is that. And, and many people will be troubled. They'll hear things and they'll do nothing about it. It was then, it is now. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. Instead, be more like the wise men. What were they doing? Last question. Why did the wise men seek Jesus? Well, it gives it to us twice, but we've already read it, but we'll read it again. Verse 2. They come and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. And we have come to worship him. Yeah, and that's exactly what they do. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Yeah, they came for that. Yes, they give them gifts. They do that, but it's not why they come. Their gifts are only a part of the whole point. The reason they came was to worship him. The reason they came was to find him who is worthy, and that's my exhortation to you, that you would hear all of this, and whether you did incredibly well on the test or very, very poorly, you would say, you know what, I want to worship him. I, I mean, I'm, I'm being reminded this is true and this is real, and that's exactly what we need to see. All right, so take your little quiz paper, add up 
all the ones you got right, add up the ones you got wrong, whichever way is easier for you, kind of come to a conclusion of, uh, of how you did. I'm sure some of you did great. Uh, if you want to have it on, on, on a kind of an accounting, we're just going to do it straight accounting. If you got them all right, like A+, plus, like good job, like you, 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 know, you know my weirdness, you know my questions, good job. If you missed just a couple of them, you still get an A, you know, kind of work your way down there. If you got like half of them wrong, we'll give you an E for effort. You know, like, we'll give you an E for effort, you know, kind of there. After that, after that, it's not so good. After that's no, we don't grave on a curve here. It just kind of is what it is. And so uh, uh, it lands that way. But I also am drawing you to a place of just saying, hey, there's a reason why we do this. It's a little bit silly. Hope it's a little bit fun. But in the midst of it, part of the reason is, again, is to draw us to truth. I think about what Jesus said. So when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says, you know what? You, if you believe me, be a person of this book. Be a person of my word. If you know my word, it, it, it'll impact your world. It'll change your life. It'll make you free. But you've got to stay in this book. So I draw your attention to it because we're thinking about Christmas. We're thinking about what it is. Now, if the account of Christmas was the equivalent of war and peace, you know, kind of deal, some of you could be like, man, that's a lot of reading. It's just a lot of reading. That's just hard to do. We're talking about the accounts of the birth of Jesus. It's a couple chapters. I mean, we're talking Luke 2, Matthew 1 and 2 in the midst of it. We're not talking, you know, this, you know, weighted stuff. It's, it's, it's there, but you should be the kind of person that says, I, 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 I spend time there. Like, if I'm going to do Christmas, I'm going to make sure I spend time on what the Bible actually says. Um, and, and so if you did poorly on this quiz, again, some of it's my questions. I own that. But some of it might be like, I need to pay more attention. I'm not paying attention. I should, I should dive into this. I mean, if I'm going to be someone that, that does Christmas, I should dive into this. And that becomes my exhortation. In fact, think about it this way. The truth is what we need. And I'm not an anti-Christmas person. Please understand that. If you, if you are an anti-Christmas person, I love you, and I totally understand that, and I'm fine if you're there. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not someone that says, I, you know, I hate all the, the trappings of Christmas. In fact, I kind of find it interesting. I find it interesting that so much of the stories, so much of the fables, and so much of the, the man-made stories that surround Christmas, they are so filled with redemption and hope. I think about it this way. Um, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, uh, said in making, a, making stories, a storyteller is often reflecting the splintered fragment of the true light. He says, here's the thing about being a storyteller. So often you are telling a story, but ultimately behind the story, you can see the real story. Uh, so that sometimes it's intentional, and Tolkien's was, C.S. Lewis was, like Chronicles of Other times it's not intentional. But Tolkien would say people are inevitably drawn to it, whether they mean to or not. That somehow it's all, you can almost always see behind it. And I would tell you Christmas is interesting. It's not universal. There are other stories. But the majority of the stories that people make up and come about Christmas, are they not filled with redemption and hope? I mean, if you're a Christmas fanatic, you know what I'm talking about, right? So, I mean, we, we think about it. You know, the Grinch, his heart will grow three sizes, you know? I mean, he's really going to get there. Scrooge, he's going to go from a miserly, you know, miserable man to a generous, loving person. 
Buddy's really going to get reconnected to his family, you know, in, in, in the midst of this. Um, you, know, uh, you know, we watched this whole thing. George really is going to discover out he has a wonderful life in the, in the midst of the deal. You know, Kevin is going to defeat all the crazy lunatics and get reunited to his family. I mean, yeah, you get to see, you know, Bob and Betty, they actually have a white Christmas and they find true romance. I mean, this is really, I mean, you get the stories. I mean, the stories are like, yeah, it always seems to end up in redemption and hope, and transformation. But I'm telling you, because I think the story should be like, yeah, I'm drawn to that. Maybe you are, maybe you are, but here's what I'm wanting to make sure I say as clearly as I can. The fractured stories don't do it. The fractured stories will never get you to the meat. And so if you come at, come at Christmas and you're like one of those people like, I love Christmas, and you're like, I love the Christmas romance, which, by the way, it's such a crazy thing that like Christmas romance is like a genre of its own. I mean, I just like, there's like a zillion Christmas movies, and I've, I've seen a few of them because I have daughters, okay? So like, but they're like all the same. It's like, okay, yeah, they're gonna, yeah, he's going to get married. They're all going to get in love. Yeah, I know how it's going to happen, you know? And so anyway, sorry. Um. You should look at that and think, well, hey, I, I see something I want. I, I want this. But here's the thing. Christmas is going to end in a week. I don't mean to disappoint you, but in eight days, it's over. Uh, I mean, and, and things will start coming down. Christmas lights will go off. People bring down the trees. The presents will be over. The magic of Christmas, whatever that is, will seem to dissipate. And for some people, it's just going to be empty and just like, man, it's just back to normal life. Back, back to normal life, because somehow it's as if the stories themselves, like they're not going to make anybody change. They're not going to fix the brokenness in people's lives. But there's something here that in the midst of this should draw us to the true story. And I hold out to you the wise men, because the wise men, it would seem that maybe they figured this out when Jesus was born. Maybe the star appears when Jesus is born. Maybe earlier, but one way or another, they begin their journey. They begin their journey that might take them a year, because they want to say, like, I want to see him. I, like, I want, I, I'm after him. Like, I want to, I want to worship him. I, 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 want, I want that to be the, the space in the midst of it, and I would invite you to that. I would invite you to be that person that would say, I want, the tr- I want to see Jesus. I mean, because, you know, all the Christmas movies, they're not going to make me, they're not going to change who I really am, but you know what? I have asked you some crazy questions this morning in the midst of the quiz, but they were actually meant to be weighty and meaty questions. Because if you're looking at Jesus, you would say, hey, he's the one that was born at exactly the right time to bring me into his family. He's the one that they named him Jesus to deal with my sin. He's the one, you know, that was born into a broken world and transforms that. He's the one that we still find through the same signs and find ourselves kind of pointing to Christ. He's the one that that is born king. He's the one that has all the hope in the midst of that. And this morning, that's where I want to leave you with that. I want to encourage you that you would become one that says, I want the real thing. I don't want the I don't want the the fractured stories. I don't want to live my life on uh, on the things that aren't true. I want I want the the real thing, and the real thing is there. It's what Jesus is to us, and He is inviting to us to it. And to that, I call you to His Word. I call you to be a person of this book, to the words of life that would draw us to everything that God has for us. So that's where we're going to end this morning. You can close your Bibles if you haven't already done so. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God that he would bring us uh, to what he has for us in this and compel us forward to be those who pursue Jesus. Father, we think about this morning, and, and it's been a different morning, different than we normally do. Hopefully fun, hopefully not frustrating. Lord, I pray against any condemnation. I know it could go that way, and I pray it wouldn't do that. Instead, I do pray it would be encouragement. 
may you cause those things that are not true, those things that you have not told us, just to fade into the background. May we find ourselves attracted to the real account that you gave us of you sending your son at the exact right time to be the one that would save us from our sin, to bring us in, to be your family, to be the one that would be life and hope and help to us. May you compel us and help us to be those who, unlike the city of Jerusalem, are just troubled, but don't do anything about it. May we be like the wise men who journey to worship you, to say, Lord, I want to come and, and, and put my focus on you, to worship you for who you are, this glorious God who came to bring us into a relationship who would die for us on the cross. May we see it. May we be drawn to it. May we be just affected by that. And so, Lord, I'm just asking once more, make us a people of the truth that Jesus, you said, if we would stay in the Bible, if we would abide in your truth, you would bring us freedom. I pray for that. Make us a people of your book. Make us a people that hold fast to the words of life that you have given us. We ask for that as we surrender this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have questions, we're here. Come up afterwards. If you don't know Jesus,